Tonight on Arena, we review My Father's House, the new novel from Joseph O'Connor and Joe Chester on his new album, inspired by Lucia Joyce. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. The writer Joseph O'Connor is no stranger to historical fiction, having had considerable success some 20 years ago with The Star of the Sea, his epic novel of the Irish famine and the ship that took survivors to America. Since then, he has explored the American Civil War, the lives of Irish actress Molly Good and writers J.M. Singh and Bram Stoker in books such as Redemption Falls, Ghostlight and Shadowplay. In his new novel, My Father's House, he turns his gaze on Nazi-occupied Rome and the true story of Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty, a priest responsible for saving thousands of lives in the bitter winter of 1943. Richard Aldous has been reading the book for us and he joins me uh, now on the line. We're we're in December 1943 and we're in Rome. Maybe you'd give us uh, the historical context uh, of, of where we were and particularly in Italy and in Rome at that time. What was going on, Richard? Yeah, exactly as you say. And hello, Sean. Um, this is a, a really good historical drama, but we're at the very, very dramatic moment historically where the, the German forces have occupied Rome. But of course, the Vatican has, has is hanging on to its tenuous neutrality. So there's this fascinating relationship that Joseph O'Connor explores throughout the book about the relationship between those German occupying forces and the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church having to think about its own protection, but also worrying about the the moral and ethical issues involved in doing a deal with the devil. Yeah, so we have we have politics at play here, we have religion at play here, and we have a serious war at play here, where lives can be lost in 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 a split second. Let's face it. Uh, but from the very first page of this novel. O'Connor sets us off as if, not as if, he sets us off at the pace of a thriller. This, a black Daimler with a diplomatic number plate, screeches up to a hospital with a wounded man inside. Um, and the, the it, it, it has that kind of spy film feeling to it in that opening, Richard. Yes, yeah, it's, it's one of the things actually that I think he does very, very well because you know this this is a, a really different kind of blend of writing that he writes this as a thriller, but it's also literary fiction. Uh, there's also a, a kind of a sense that at sometimes he's quite philosophical about things. That so as as a reader, you're never really allowed to just kind of rest on your laurels. Um, sometimes it has that kind of propulsive quality of a kind of a Fleming or a Le Carre, mm. that, but actually the writer it reminded me the most of was is, is Graham Greene in that mode of writing books like Ministry of Fear and The Confidential Agent. So, you know, it's very literary, but it also has this very dynamic quality to it. So at times it is very dramatic and very exciting. And a big part of the dynamic quality in it is this real life character, Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty. I mean, you almost couldn't make up a character like this. He's multifaceted. 
Yeah, now he's and he's brilliantly realised as well because you know one of the things that Joseph O'Connor does throughout this book is avoid cliche. That it would be very easy to uh, present uh, this uh, Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty, this brilliant man. Uh, he had one stage uh, he's kind of described as having a a mind as as sharp as a lawnmower blade. He rides his motorcycle. He's the kind of the classic muscular uh, Christian uh, in some ways. Brilliant intellectual, uh, but but he's also a very flawed character and we see those flaws as well as he kind of wrestles with the kind of the the, the real life politics going on uh, around him so it's, it's, it's brilliantly realised I have to say and he's a kind of there's a touch of the the action hero about him as well even that opening scene that I mentioned <laughs> where he speaks to the guard at the door uh, or the the guy on the door of the hospital and he lets him know pretty quickly that um, even though he's dressed as a priest you don't mess with me yeah, exactly. He he has this kind of physicality. There's a there's a moment uh, kind of early on where he visits the, a prisoner of war camp and uh, the the commandant kind of comes over and uh, in one of those kind of lines that uh, is is kind of classic of, um, of 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 Joseph O'Connor, he describes the commandant as having the jovial bonhomie of the secretly gutless. Uh, and, and 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 then we have then we have uh, Monsignor O'Flaherty literally threatens to kind of punch his teeth through the back of his skull. Uh, so, you know, this is this is maybe not the kind of classic image that uh, you would have of a, uh, of, of a Roman Catholic Monsignor uh, working within the Curia at the, at the Vatican. Yeah, and, and I mean, obviously the Vatican at that time was the, the neutral state, tiny little country in, in the midst of the big Roman city and in fact the bigger Italian country I- itself. Do we get much of the the machinations and the political intrigue and the the, the, the the debate that was going on within the Vatican itself as to how they should respond and handle the war situation that was all around them. Yeah, we do, and and this is something else actually that O'Connor does very well. He's he's got a phrase early on where he talks about the Vatican, like all Kremlins, is a hive of whispers and uh, and and envies, and you re- that is a theme that runs throughout the book. But also, I think I can I can describe this because it's it's early on in mm. the in the novel that there is a, a fantastic scene where suddenly the the Pope Pius the Twelfth literally turns up. Uh, in in the middle of the novel to confront uh, Hugh O'Flaherty, um, and you know he's described as one carved as granite. Uh, he he screams at O'Flaherty, "Do you wish to ruin everything?" He conjures this image of the the jackboot on St Peter's tomb, and I, I have to say that as a historian, I, I've never seen it better realised in fiction. This conflict between, on the one hand, political realism, having to make decisions that are going to have consequences consequences that will last for generations, as opposed to the idealism and the kind of the morality, the personal morality, uh, which uh, O'Flaherty feels. So, you know, that scene is absolutely brilliantly realised. And as I say, it it tells you what is at stake. And again, it's one of these things that uh, Joseph O'Connor does, that he avoids the easy answers uh, throughout the book. One of the things that he does brilliantly, though, is his use of, of I, I suppose, that popular culture is in there in terms of film and music, but particularly choral music is used in a, in a very clever way uh, throughout the book. In fact, it's not just Hugh O'Flaherty who is involved in trying to get these prisoners of war 
back over enemy lines back into the allied the allied countries that they have come from uh, or indeed to help Jewish people who have managed to escape the, what, what has been going on uh, to, to help them get into neutral countries or out of out of the war zone as well but his he, he has a bundle of helpers in his choir as he calls them maybe give us a, a rundown of that choir and, and the nature of the characters there yeah, it's a, it's a great cast of characters, and you're right, by the way, that music is another theme that kind of runs through uh, through the book, including uh, the kind of opera and and Tosca mm. in particular is a is a is a theme. But yeah, it's a it's a great cast of characters that uh, you have the wife of the of the Irish ambassador there, Delia Kin, and the British am, ambassador or, or uh, envoy um, uh, plenipotentiary uh, is is there, uh, Darcy Osborne, who goes on to be the Duke of Leeds. His bagman is this kind of uh, you know, very kind of uh, knowing kind of Londoner who provides mm. the kind of streetwise quality. Um, and then there's a, an, a kind of Italian Contessa. And so there are a number of these characters uh, and they kind of, they work together and they bring all their kind of different ideas and prejudices and thoughts. And mm. uh, and so, uh, and some of them break down barriers. One of the things that he does very well is that O'Flaherty starts the book uh, as, as, as being uh, somebody who's very anti-British. Um, and again, this is something that O'Connor does very cleverly because he undermines that and shows how kind of uh, O'Flaherty comes to realise uh, that there is this kind of uh, rivalry but also deep bond mm. between the Irish and the British that again kind of plays out uh, throughout the book. Sometimes it's about things like sport, boxing and soccer which he's uh, obsessed with but also about this very very important thing that they're doing running the escape line for prisoners of war and for Jews. Yeah and of course you could, if, you, if you think of O'Flaherty and this would be true to life um, and his age and his era he, he he thinks back to his family and his youth and that would have been in and around that he drew, he grew up in County Kerry at a time when the black and tans were, were a very recent memory to people uh, in that part of the country indeed in many parts of the country so that gives a kind of an, an, an edge I suppose to yeah they're all great buddies and pals in Rome now trying to get these people out to safety but there's a there is an underlying tension there yeah, and 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 you know he O'Flaherty is is given kind of lines that express that you know perfectly that when he he goes initially to see these British prisoners of war, he asks he says you know I, I don't want to do this that you know essentially I, I hate the British that you know we we like a British occupation uh, we don't like British occupation and we we dislike their army even more were well, words to that effect mm. and so he doesn't want to go, but then but again O'Connor is is kind of clever with this kind of thing and in particular. He he throws an elbow about Irish neutrality in the war. That I'll be interested to see how this goes down um, in Ireland and among with other historians. At one stage, he says he has O'Flaherty say that neutrality is the is the most extremist stance of all. Without it, no tyranny uh, can flourish. I mean, that's that's a mm. that's a line that gets right to the heart of Ireland's position uh, during the war. And so, you know, again, it adds to this complexity that O'Connor is doing here, but also which he's done in other books and yeah. uh, most famously of all, The the, the Star of the Sea. And, and, and obviously, the, you know, at, at that time, that 
that that um, neutrality during, as it was called here, the emergency, that is a source of debate for many, in fact, and it has always been a source of historical controversy, or not controversy, exactly. sorry, historical debate, I guess, would be the way of putting it. But the, 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 the choir that he has, um, the, Delia Kiernan is in there, people will know her as Delia Murphy, I think, in this country, um, a, a real-life singer. And there are Irish or English diplomats in there. I think Sir Darcy Osborne is a real person, and Major Sam Derry, they are real people, yes? Yeah, that's right. That um, I mean, as I say, Darcy Osborne goes on to be the Duke of the mm. Duke of Leeds. Uh, he's he's actually great friends with the, uh, the who became the Queen Mother. I mean, at this stage, Queen Elizabeth, uh, married to George the Sixth. There's you know talk that there had been some kind of romance between the two of them when they were much younger. Um, but they they have a friendship. He's friends with uh, the the uh, the daughter who goes on to be Queen Elizabeth II. So he's a very very well connected. Um, Mm. But not particularly wealthy, but very well connected aristocrat uh, and somebody uh, who in many ways is the apotheosis of the kind of thing that we were talking about uh, with that O'Flaherty would not have liked uh, in yeah. terms of kind of Britishness. So again, I, it's, a, it's a fascinating, fascinating relationship. And the Basel Profondo of the choir, um, John May, this Cockney um <laughs> Who's, who's a guy you kind of want to have around you, really, isn't he? Because he can get anything you want at any time, in any place, even in the middle of a of a, a raging world war. Is he? Is, is there any basis in reality for him, or is that a fictional character? Yeah, I mean, he's so he is. He was um, uh, Darcy Osborne's bag man, his kind of his valet, I suppose. Um, so yeah, he's he's a real character, and as you say, I mean, he is this kind of classic London wide boy who kind of <laughs> flourished, particularly during kind of wartime yeah. uh, uh, circumstances where you needed to get yeah. things on the on the quiet and something. And and he, again, he's kind of brilliantly realised. I I have to say that one of the things that O'Connor does very well uh, is the kind of the dialogue he he uses something that he's used before, which is these kind of different uh, perspectives you see. Uh, in this case, it's done through kind of interviews that were recorded at a, at a later stage. He's brilliant at capturing the different voices of these of these various characters. So, you know, they're, yeah. they're not just people on the sidelines. They're real yeah. characters within and, the And I must say the that the parties, the parties that Delia Kernan and the embassy, <laughs> the parties that they have are well, they're worth, the book's worth it for those alone, the kind Absolutely. of the, the fun that's had there. But I did want to finish up just by, by asking your final judgment on the book and that mixture as it is of these I suppose in some cases made up testimonies in other cases uh, historically accurate and realistic documents and realistic characters you the historian does did that mix work for you does does Joseph O'Connor strike the balance between I suppose historical fact if you can have that and fiction yeah, I, I think he does it very well because the the clue is in the title there, isn't it? It's historical mm. fiction. This is a work of fiction, but it has a historical sensibility. It's based in what happened historically. Um, and I think it has the ring of truth about it. And, you know, actually, quite honestly, uh, the character of Paul Hauptmann, who's the major German figure, who is this kind of psychopathic yeah. German running uh, Rome at the time, you know, that's, that's based on someone called Herbert Kapler. And it's interesting that... Connor doesn't use the real person there because clearly he feels that for uh, for reasons of the fiction, for artistic reasons, he needs to kind of play around with it. So that that kind of suggests a kind of honesty uh, yeah. to me in 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 what he's doing here. Yeah, so no, it's 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 re historically, I think it's really really well. And I, I suppose that the presence of that fictional German character also adds to the kind of jeopardy that the characters find themselves in. You, there's no wonder, there's no denying the the bravery of Hugh O'Flaherty and his choir in in. No, 
absolutely. No, absolutely. And and you know, particularly O'Flaherty yeah. is is walking that line the, the, through the entire novel. That sounds like a recommendation to me, Richard. Hope I'm not putting words in your mouth. No, absolutely. I, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I read it very quickly as well. So as as we said earlier, it has this kind of thriller-like quality to it. Great. Well, Richard Aldis there with his judgment on My Father's House, which certainly sounds like it's one to go out and get this very evening by Joseph O'Connor. It's published by Harville Secker. In December 1982, a 75-year-old woman by the name of Lucia was buried in Kingsthorpe Cemetery in Northampton, having suffered a stroke. The only daughter of James Joyce and Nora Barnacle had once enjoyed a promising dance career in Paris, had a love affair with Samuel Beckett, but mental illness ultimately led to her confinement and she spent decades of her life, in fact, in an institution in England. And we know very little about Lucia Joyce. Most of her letters have been destroyed, so have her medical records, as well as poems and a novel she had written. Musician Joe Chester has written Lucia, a suite for classical guitar and strings, inspired by the life of Lucia Joyce. And he's with me in in studio now. What brought you to Lucia Joyce? What was the attraction in her in particular, Joe? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I've been a Joyce reader since I was a teenager. And when I heard, I heard a radio documentary by Deirdre Mulrooney on Lyric FM called Dancing with Lucia and it really resonated with me. But what really struck me was that I didn't know about Lucia Joyce, even though I was very familiar with the mm. Joyce universe and, and, and all that. And I wondered, I started asking the question, why didn't I know about her? You know, and then I started digging around a bit uh, to try and find reliable information about about Lucia Joyce and I discovered a remarkable thing that that Joyce's grandson had destroyed all her papers after she died and for that reason there's very very little reliable information that you can find out about her so we know very little about her to be honest and that started to pique my curiosity a bit you know and uh, it turned out you know not only that that basically that her papers had been destroyed, but that that she'd been basically incarcerated for 47 years Mm. of her life because of, I suppose, because of the stigma around mental illness. She was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So that was kind of almost, you know, part one of the erasure of of this person. And that she was then silenced again in death seemed to me a great, you know, injustice and... uh, I just decided, you know, I was I had been looking around for a project and I decided to try and maybe build a portrait of her, you know. And you decided to build that portrait through classical guitar. There, there are strings in here as well. Yeah. Kind of a, at times it sounds like just a quartet. At times it sounds like a bigger orchestra in, in behind you, kind of a string orchestra feel yeah. behind you as well. But how did you go about, since it was so difficult to unearth that reliable information, what did you do? Did you look for something, this definitely happened and I'm going to compose around that? Or this is a nebulous area and you know what, I, I'll, I'll compose a feeling around that. What way well, did you approach it? Well, it was a bit of both. I mean, I did want to stick to the facts mm. because there's a kind of a, a sort of a mini industry, cottage industry of literature and stuff around Lucia Joyce. When, when you start to dig around, you start to discover that actually there has been quite a lot of material written about her and, mm. you know, for example, plays and stuff. But I sort of started to find that I think a lot of people, because Stephen Joyce had destroyed all this material, sort of use that as a license to invent whatever they want. And I didn't want to engage in that. I didn't want to sort of 
add to the noise of rumour and speculation around her. So that sort of really is a sort of self-limiting thing. It li mm. limited me to things that we know happened. So, for example, the Little Match Girl, she did get a role in Jean Renoir's film, which obviously that must have been a, a huge thing for yeah. a 21-year-old dancer. Uh, now, it was a small part, but she must have felt we're on our way here now. This must have been incredibly exciting. So I thought, well, that's a really big moment. So let's write something about that. About a year later, she was in a, an international dance competition and she came second in that. A lot of people say, for example, we, don't, we have no idea whether she was a good dancer or a bad dancer, but I mean, she came second in an international competition. So I think that, you know, you can probably assume that she was very talented. So at this competition, when the winner was announced and Lucia Joyce came second, the audience, the French audience, erupted and stood on their feet and started chanting, L'Irlandaise, L'Irlandaise, they wanted the Irish girl, you know. Mm. So I thought, well, OK, you have to write a piece about that, you know. And then there's the relationship with Beckett, that's a fact, so we, we can write about that. And, you know? and other things that you've been there too, like yeah. when she was, um, you mentioned that festival of, 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 of dance, the, the Beckett relationship as well. Uh, but you do bring us, in fact, you start out at the moment of, of death, the loneliness of death in, in the opening track on the, on the album, Northampton. Was it yeah. important to kind of set that down as your, your starting point? I thought it would be a, an interesting way to start. One of the first things I found was an old photograph of Lucia shortly before she died. It was a, a photograph in St. Andrews in Northampton. She's sitting in a chair looking at the window and she has this haunted look on her face. You know, it's not like she's smiling for the camera. She looks haunted. And I thought, well, what about if we, if we started the suite there and then have Work her thinking her back, back yeah. to her, her free days, her yeah. youth, you know. How would you have described the music that you were doing up until this album? Well, I mean, I started out playing kind of alternative punk, you know, and mm. then sort of progressed through singer-songwriter into folk music and sort of... I, I'm kind of musically agnostic, you know. I, I've listened to classical music all my life. I listen to... I listen, for me, you know, I've never discriminated musically by genre. It doesn't, mm. it doesn't... It's not helpful to me at all. Either music moves me or it doesn't. And so I've always been interested in this kind of music, but I never really had the space and time to throw myself, devote myself into learning how to make that. Joyce, or sorry, Beckett and Lucia Joyce, this is sometimes a bone of contention as to how much of a relationship there was or wasn't, how kind or unkind was he to her, um, uh, to what extent did his, his interactions with her, were they actually about trying to get to her father more yeah. than anything else? Yeah. Was it hard to find facts around the Beckett relationship? The thing about this is you, you scratch the surface and, you know, immediately you're kind of not too happy with Sam Beckett, you know. But actually, like all things, like all history, it's complicated, you know. Mm. First of all, you're talking about two people who are maybe 20, 21 years old. And it's like, you know, the Bob Dylan line, you can't be wise and in love at the same time. So, yeah, I think Beckett probably treated her badly. He did say to her I was, that he was only interested in her to get to her father. Mm. Joyce then threw him out of the house and he was persona non grata until he realised he needed a translator for Anne-Livia Pluribel, at which point he invited him back with open arms. You know? <laughs> but the thing is, um, Beckett contributed money to Lucia's healthcare when Nora complained about the cost of it. He contributed his royalties towards keeping 
her medication or medic medical care going. This is a long time after their relationship or supposed relationship. And when Beckett died in Paris, when his desk was cleaned out, there, were there was a photograph of Lucia in his desk. Mm. And when Lucia was visited, which she was vis visited quite rarely, but when people did visit her, they all say the first thing she asked was, she asked after her son of the Beckett. Yeah, yeah. So there's a kind of a there's a kind of a heartbreaking quality yeah. to that story a story on both sides on both I sides think so, of the yeah. Kind of. So this is the piece then that that made it onto the album regarding Beckett. <laughs> Beckett there from Joe Chester's album Lucia and uh, Joe in studio with me this evening the Lucia in the album's title refer a reference to Lucia Joyce and obviously Beckett in that track a reference to, to, to Sam Beckett I was struck uh, Joe by that track in particular how it opens with quite that the dark string quartet feel to it and then the brighter guitar comes into it there's a bit of a dance involved there I suppose one could argue yeah. but to what extent was, was, was something a piece like that in particular was it kind of inspired by as much about your knowledge of Beckett and your reading of Beckett and, and, and his biography as it was by his interactions with Lucia? Um, not as much. I mean, it certainly is more from Lucia's point of view. And there is a dance between the strings and the guitar and that sort of starts to... It starts quite harmoniously but gets more fractious as the record goes on. And I sort of, in my own mind, thought of the guitar representing Lucia and the strings representing sometimes the forces acting upon her. Or that maybe there is some some disharmony mm. and conflict there, and the conflict I think starts to creep in with Beckett, you know, and because I mean the, there is some theorising that the heartbreak with with Beckett was was when things started to go wrong for her, really, you know, and she started to display self-destructive tendencies, you know. The final piece that I want to play is, in fact, the final uh, track on the album, A Flower Given to My Daughter. This seems to be from the Joyce point of view, James Joyce point of view. James Joyce wrote this poem uh, for Lucia when she was a child. She was probably five or six years old. It's a beautiful poem. I mean, Joyce is not known for being a poet. And in fact, for such a modernist novelist, his poetry is quite old fashioned, I think. But this is a beautiful poem. And I just thought it was a, a nice way to end... Because when James Joyce died in 1941, basically Lucia's, uh, she, she was then condemned, I think, really. to She was abandoned to her demons once he died. And uh, James Joyce's last year of his life is very interesting, you know. He spent the last year of his life trying to get Lucia out of occupied France while the rest of the family was in free France in Saint-Jean-le-Puy. And it was this really sort of heartbreaking situation really where initially he got an exit visa from the Nazis for Lucia but the Swiss refused entry for the Joyce family because they thought James Joyce was Jewish which is a curious Swiss neutrality but anyway by the time he had raised enough money to get entry visas into Switzerland for the family 
the, the Nazis changed their mind and Lucia had to stay behind. And there's, there's this, I've heard this beautifully put that Joyce spent the last year of his life watching the world change from a Joycean world of, you know, maps and timetables, train timetables and realism into this Bicketian world of absurd bureaucracy and missed appointments, you know. And so poor Lucia got left behind in occupied France and she never saw her father again or her mother. Which is, I suppose, a fitting way to, to end the album then was with this yeah. greeting from father yeah, to daughter. exactly. Thanks for coming in to speak to Thanks us. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll finish with that track, final track on Joe Chester's album, Lucia, A Flower Given to My Daughter. There's a track called A Flower Given to My Daughter and that's from Joe Chester's latest album which is called Lucia which in fact he is launching this evening at a quarter past eight in Smock Alley in a show called Fragments of Lucia. The album is available uh, from Bohemia Records. Details on smockalley.com and joechester.com. Time for albums on this Friday evening. Reviewers Brian Boyd and Zara Hedeman have been listening to three new releases. Superstar Sam Smith claims they have drifted away from their winning ballads for an edgy experimentation in Gloria, Smith's fourth album. American musician Kyle Thomas, known as King Tough, releases his sixth solo album. It's called Small Down Stardust. And Big Pig is Irish singer-songwriter Jessica Smith. And her debut uh, album is simply called Bubblegum. Let's begin with Sam Smith, who uses the pronouns they and them. Gloria is their fourth album. Its release was preceded by the singles Love Me, More and Unholy, both of which topped the US Billboard chart. I was just Unholy, I think. Let us listen to the song How to Cry. Don't know when you're sad I can't tell when you're mad You've never been vulnerable How to Cry, the title of that song there from Sam Smith's latest album called Gloria. Uh, Unprecedented success Sam Smith has had their sideboard heaving under the weight of Golden Globe, Oscar, writing um, on the wall for Bond Spectre, four Grammys, three Brit Awards and all kinds of other success, which hinges to a large extent on that extraordinary voice, Mm. Sarah, I would say. Massively, absolutely. It was their voice that got them the critical acclaim initially a decade ago. And I have to say, it has been the quickest decade because I so remember when those singles Stay With Me and Money On My Mind, which are still quite omnipresent, Mm. came out. And Sam Smith has managed to maintain with that massive pop superstar um, profile a very steady release schedule. Mm. There's only three years between releases. They have a very strong um, uh, collaborative force of producers. On this album alone, there's 10 different producers. Now, we will get to how that works in this Mm. album whether it's to the benefit or the detriment Um, but yeah no a massive massive star and someone of big influence but I don't really feel that that influence is really injected into this it actually feels very dated I felt well that's funny because um, Smith has said that Gloria is the album they always wanted to make do you have a sense that this is uh, lays down some kind of marker Brian 
every artist says that about every single album. I think that's probably true. We we can dismiss that (laughs) automatically. I think um, they wanted to get away from the label of being a singer of sad songs. They were seen very much as being a male version of Adele and they had that reputation of being this is the person who sings um, uh, overwrought emotional songs. And they refer to this album as being like an emotional, sexual and spiritual liberation. liberation. And you hear it, I mean, even though millions have been thrown at the production of this album, it's, it's so glossy, it's uh, you actually, your hand would burn touching it. There's, there's times here where, like songs like such as How to Cry, where they just bring it down to basics and it's just that voice that goes from the baritone and is that to the, when the to song the is best? Yeah, absolutely. But again, it is an album where I think there's almost like a, a sense of we can't we can't let them just be their voice. We have to throw the kitchen sink at a production yeah. voice. And it became a bit cloying after a while. Yeah, because mm. as well as they've, they've, many producers, did you say, are 10? Around 10. Around 10. And there are numerous um, yeah. collaborations across mm. the album as well. Six and so people to write a three-minute song. I'm yeah. not having that. And, yeah. and also, I, I just thought there were times when I thought, no, I just want to hear that voice and that guitar. Or maybe mm. a little bit of production mm. on it. Sometimes fine, but it felt like a massive misstep for an artist of this calibre's fourth album. Mm. And also they have said that this is their coming of age album. And, you know, with it, we heard, you know, the melancholic ballad there, the kind of strip back one. There is some disco fuse numbers. There's some early 2000s dance numbers. There's a song, Lose You, which reminded me quite of like a Eurovision entry, which I did find uh. I got swept up in. But I just felt that as well, for someone of their prominence and for someone who has such a strong team around them, the, and with his their consistent album releasing, I just felt that they were maybe t- two albums behind what they should have sounded right. like. But although the opening track certainly lyrically has a lot to say, mm. let's have a listen to Love Me More. Have you ever felt like being somebody else? Feeling like the mirror isn't good for your health. There is an extraordinary honesty in a, in a lyric like that. Have you ever felt like being somebody else? And you, as, as the lyric goes on, it really does touched my heartstrings at any but you were saying you felt Brian that you'd heard a lot of this in the style of it the style of the song before had you it's it sounds like uh, some of these songs have been written by committee Mm. And they actually have, if you look at the amount of songwriters on them. Mm. And it really is, you you can imagine the record company meeting, uh, talking about what demographics they want to hit with right. this song. Because as you go through the album, you're getting the up-tempo, you're getting the mid-tempo, you're getting the ballad. Mm. And it, it does sound like Bach ticking. How, uh, ticking. However, on certain songs, for example, Oh No God, they sound just like Curtis Mayfield. It's that the beautiful, sweet soul voice, which is allowed to do all the work mm. by itself. That works for me. When, when you get a song like I'm Not here to make friends which just sounds like 15 people have written one second of it it's just an unholy mess and And it does it does sound like like a, like you're you're being demographically targeted, and the 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 glorious song, the penultimate song on the album, which is purely choral, kind of comes out of nowhere. It's a beautiful piece in and of it itself, is. but it kind of comes out of nowhere again as well. That is, I think, one of the kind of um, too many cooks in the kitchen because yeah. it is such a striking and beautiful composition, but it's so misjudged and where yeah. it's placed in the album that should have closed the album because it is mm. such a striking message. Then just give me your stars and I'll give uh, Brian a last word. Two and a half. Two and a half, Brian. It's just, it's, it's that song, Gloria. You're talking about there's an Irish connection there. It's co-written by Foy Vance. 
Ah, oh, right. Mm. There you go. And uh, stars from you, Brian. Three stars. Three stars from you. Let the, that's for Sam Smith and the album Gloria. Let's move on then to Small Town Stardust, new album from King Tough, or American Kyle Thomas. Uh, usual fare is psychedelic rock. Small Town Stardust finds like, in kind of a nostalgic mood here, looking back. Uh, is his childhood? Is it his hometown? That's what we're talking about here, Zara, I'm yeah, guessing. Yeah, he prefaced the album by saying it was an album about love and nature and youth. And it is one of those very... And nos- the album he always wanted to write. <laughs> <laughs> Funny enough, that didn't actually feature in the press release. Um, no, he's talking about... He was very honest in the press release, talking about how like he was from the small town of Vermont, mm. but at the age of maybe in his early 20s, he had to move to California and tell it to LA if he wanted music to be a viable career. And he did make a viable career with... With, um, a band witch with uh, Dinosaur Genius Jay Mascus and as Ty Siegel's guitarist. This as well, it's, it's a step away from the usual kind of grunge psychedelic mm. stuff that he does. This was gorgeously, um, very 1970s soft rock. Some of the influences, which are some of my personal favourites, like Harry Nilsson, The Carpenters, Todd Rundgren, T-Rex are all in there. But he also has elements of like John Bryan in there too. And I felt that the nostalgia in this was quite earnest. It wasn't cheesy. It didn't have me like, oh geez, just go back to the hometown then if you love it so much. It was nice. <laughs> oh, right. How I Love is the second track on the album and you can probably work out what it is that he's talking about. So mellow. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't get stressed out by anything in that song. How I love from Small Sound Stardust and King Tough. Band. It actually that the mellowness actually brings you into this dreamlike state mm. after three or four songs. I was dreading this, not dreading, but I wasn't looking forward to reviewing this album because King Tough. I was thinking, oh, it's, it's garage rock, it's stoner rock. This sounds like Laurel Canyon, nineteen seventies. It's like Nick Nick Drake is singing Graham Parsons songs. It mm. has that beauty about it. And it's it's almost like it's not nostalgic. It's not this uh, this musician in the big bad world, big bad music world of Los Angeles, looking back to growing up in Vermont. It's not nostalgic in the simple sense. It's more like he's been through a copy of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass and is beginning to look at transcendence and nature and symbolism. It's very very poetic. Yeah, mm. and uh, in in that regard, if you know the old storytelling maxim of show don't tell, mm. he kind of shows the nostalgia by by those old style even the old guitars yeah. the old you know the, the old style harmonies that are in those songs yeah. he's kind of showing us rather than telling us what he's what Ex- he feels exactly and just listening to it there came to me like that is a very distinct Californian sound yeah. of yeah. the 70s and mm. I don't think it's any surprise that you know he is evoking that era when as a teen he, he goes back to his teen years quite a lot and he has a line I'm a loser lost in my headphones and I think it's no uh, coincidence that the 70s kind of Californian soundtrack is like doing this album because he's there now he obviously dreamt of that era and being a musician there and then looking back then on his younger self kind of a, a making it like I've come this far I'm mm. doing this I'm a musician now so it is a nice like tie in to the imagery that he paints Alright let's say you, uh, Brian you mentioned this idea that there's a kind of a, a reference to nature in, in the across the record as well indeed it opens with a track called Love Letters to Plants Yeah 
again. You know, super mellow feel off. And it. the sweet Lovely harmonies, harmonies at the yeah. end. It reminds me of Beach Boys' Beach yeah, Boys Smile album. I think is, you both enjoyed this. Um, you did, Brian. Yeah. If anyone from the National Concert Hall is listening, please book them in that venue to play this album completely because that would be the perfect surround I think for it it's this is as good I mean you remember George Harrison's All Things Must Pass that was the first solo album the Beatles and everyone was going oh we didn't know George had this in him where did this yeah. suddenly come from this is the same feeling I had for with this this okay. is how good it is stars four and a half four and a half oh that's high from Brian to go I thought I was going to hear a five for a minute four and a half <laughs> <laughs> okay and Zara um, I really enjoyed it and I think it's a great entry point to King Tough so I'm going to go four you're going a, f- a very solid four on as well no doubt about your both of your enjoyment of that uh, Big Pig is Jessica Smith an Irish artist who grew up in Spain now lives in London after releasing a number of EPs in the past few years Bubblegum is her first album she's just been long listed for the BBC Sound of 2023 and here um, from the album is picking up some strong language in the midst of this but a good example of what she does Picking up the title of the track, it also features Deb Never, that track uh, from Bubblegum from Big Pig. Um, there's a lot going on there, Brian. Mm. And that sort of reflects who she is, because she's Irish, she, but she grew up in Spain. Uh, Spanish is her first language. And you'll hear her singing, you'll hear her rapping singing in, in Spanish in this album. She's based now between London and Los Angeles. There's ideas ideas in every single song. Mm. The great thing is with, with Big Pig is you start a song and you've absolutely no idea where it's going to go and where it's going to finish. It can be lush dance pop and then mm. it can be drum and bass, but she knits it all together. And she has this woo- very woozy voice, which sort of sits on top of everything. And again, you're not really sure where she's going with her voice. So the, that element of surprise and the creativity she shows, not all the songs work. And so it's, it's, yeah. it's, this is only a seven track. It's, I was going to say it's that. It's more like an extended EP. Not all the songs work, but the ideas coming out of her are incredible. Yeah, mm. seven songs. I think I'm just trying to open up my Spotify and check the, the, the length of the length of the album because it's a very short album as well. Not just seven songs. Well, not to be pedantic, it's actually a mixtape. It's not an album. I just yeah. so beg your pardon. Is, there you go. There is a difference because yeah. with a mixtape, it is more of a compilation of ideas. Yeah, yeah. So you don't have to have a through line. Not, not everything has to be thematically tied. And with that song that we heard picking up, it's a perfect amalgamation, I felt, of her previous work because I feel that this... Um, uh, mixtape Bubblegum is a really great um, marker for her evolution and where she's going next because the opening kind of four songs of this mixtape are very different to where she was before and with this song that we heard the opening to that is what we had from Big Pig yeah. in the past and the latter half is where we're going Well uh, yeah, you mentioned that the opening four songs are, are more a sense of More electronic and right. yeah. yeah well let's have a listen to it's the fourth song in fact this is what I meant or this is what they meant I beg your pardon So that's uh, this is what they meant from uh, Bubblegum, the new um, mixtape from <laughs> Big Pig. Standing corrected by Zara Hederman <laughs> on that particular aspect of things. But um, it, that was a song that, that stood out for you 
on the mixtape. <laughs> Keep going to say, wanting to say album. Brian? Very much so. And it's like, there's bits of Robin in there. There's bits of disco pop. She's not so too cool mm. for school to run away from disco and pure pop. A bit like Roshi Murphy in that regard, and that she can struggle with both, both camps. And also with the production, we were talking about how there was too much production on the Sam Smith album. Yeah. The production here, I thought, was very clever mm. and very, it was minimal when it needed to be minimal and maximum when it needed to be maximum. Um Again, I love her ideas. Right. I love her voice. I love where she's going. I think there's going to be, I think there's a very, very bright, there's a great album coming up soon. Mm. Stars from you, Brian? Four. A f- solid four. And from you, Zara? This is the kind of inventive pop that I would hope for from big names. And it's a four from me as a well. A solid four from you as well. Well, Big Pig and King Tough doing particularly well in the reviews there. The same Samson, maybe not at the same place as the others. Gloria, Small Town Stardust and Bubblegum, the titles of the three albums. Brian Boyd and Zara Hedeman, the names of our two reviewers. And our researchers were Liam Murphy, Paula Shields and Amadine Passa-Divine. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Mark McGrath was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme produced by Sinead E. I will talk to you on Lyric 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon if you want to tune in would be delighted to have your company and I'll be back with you as usual here on RT Radio 1 on Monday at 7 Fake No Brain On will be with you after the news